muted it. That's why I was about to prove that I wasn't a Buddhist, but those are like not lost, so I will spare them. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 12. If you didn't see, I kept seeing these uh, threatening-looking bugs flying around the uh, podium while I was seated there. So that's what I'm talking about. But uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 12, and we're going to continue there where we've been uh, thinking about the what we just sang about, that Jesus is better. And uh, as we think about the uh, book of Hebrews, that's the theme of it, is that Jesus uh, has come to show us what God's full and uh, final purpose was in his own life. And, and uh, so in Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29, that's our text today. And uh, there the scripture says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the uh, spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates that removal of those things that are being shaking, shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, how it shows us who you are, what your purpose is for us, and I pray, God, that you'll open up our hearts. God, take away the distractions that may be in our minds and give our, uh, help us to put our focus on the, the truth that you want to bring to us this morning. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Rich Mullins is one of my favorite um, Christian artists. And, of course, he went to be with the Lord. Died tragically at a young age. But some of you would remember um, some of his music. He had an album called The World as Best as I Remember It. Uh, volume one and then volume two the world's best as I remember it volume two and in one of uh, the songs on the world as best as I remember it he had a song that says the Lord takes by its corners this old world and shakes us forward and shakes us free this is the world the Lord takes by its corners this old world and shakes us forward and shakes us free And that's what this passage is saying essentially is God one day is going to take this world by its corners and he's going to shake us and he's going to shake us forward and free. And so sometimes people wonder, what is God up to? What's God up to? Well, a helpful way of understanding that is just to read the Bible. 
When you read the Bible, you see what God is up to. He's not hiding what he's doing. And we see, uh, I think about what Paul said. When he was arrested for preaching the resurrection, he had been taken uh, into arrest in Jerusalem and he was transported as a citizen, a citizen of Rome. He, he made an appeal to Caesar and he was being transported all the way to Rome. And along the way in the book of Acts, he stops and he defends his belief in the resurrection and preaches the gospel. And he says to one of the local kings, Herod Agrippa, he says, For the king before whom I also speak freely freely knows these things, for I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. And he's talking about the resurrection of Christ and the realities that he's been proclaiming. He says, this is, has happened openly and I'm making appeal to facts that everybody knows about. And it's a good reminder to us that God is not hiding what he's doing. God is openly telling us what history is about and what it's moving toward. And so we see that in this passage. One day God is going to show, shake the world forward and free. History is rocketing toward that moment when God is going to bring everything. He's going to culminate history. And Jesus Christ is going, going to reign physically and visibly again on this earth. That's God's purpose. That's what it's moving toward. Is Jesus' return and Jesus establishing. The Bible even says with a rod of iron, he's going to establish his reign. He's going to right everything that's wrong. In the world, and he's going to be enthroned, and the world is going to consist of Jesus worshipers. That's what the Bible teaches, just that simply. And so in Hebrews, that's what we're seeing here that the Bible is telling us what God is up to in the world, and wise people pay attention. Wise people open their ears, wise people take it in. And so when the Bible talks about God shaking the world, there are some aspects of that, several of them that we see in this passage. The first one in verses 18 through 21, we see God shakes us from our moral self-sufficiency. That's what all this language is. When I read this passage, it sounds a little uh, like Tolkien, right? Tolkien was actually a follower of Jesus himself. He and C.S. Lewis and a lot of those great fiction writers and uh, J. R. R. How many R's are? I think there's two in there. Tolkien uh, was the person that wrote The Lord of the Rings. And I loved that trilogy. I never read the books until I saw the movies. And I was glad because I don't think I had enough imagination to really read the books properly until I saw the movies. But in the movie, there's this place called Mount Doom. Mount Doom is where the ring of power has to be destroyed. And there's a sense where when I saw this passage, I'm like, this sounds like Mount Doom. It's got the, all the terror and the fire and smoke and the, it's an intimidating place. But of course, the scripture here is talking about Mount Sinai. It's talking about the place where Moses received the law from God and the, and the effect of God's presence to the people who were there. And it's going to provide for us a contrast that we'll see in the second movement in the passage uh, today. But in the first movement, we see Sinai. We see how vivid and terrible it was when God became manifest in the reality of historical Israel at that particular time and location. The things that it says about it, it's trying to set the table for us to understand the fact that there's a need that we have. And so that somber mood of warning 
and even a touch of direction. When, when we think about what, what the Old Testament law was about, what did it mean? Well, part of, uh, part of it was warning, and part of it was, was direction, but it was in incomplete direction. It starts you on the way, but it doesn't tell you everything you need to know. The way it starts us on the way is by saying we're inadequate morally. We don't have what it takes. I know a lot of people don't like that as a truth about what humans are like. But that's what, it, that's what I see in me when I, I look at my life is that I don't have what it takes. I wish I did. I wish I were perfect. Unfortunately, life has proven to me over and over again that I am not. I'm not perfect. I don't make the best decisions day in, day out, moment by moment. I'm not always the person I want to be. If you are, I'm happy for you, but my suspicion based on what I know about people is that you shared exactly the same experience as me and that everybody does, and that's what the Bible testifies. And the Bible says uh, that when we come to Sinai, that's what we see, that that, um, we're told that we're condemned that's what the law shows us. It shows us that when we look at those morally clear objectives, these and, and more that we see in God's self-revelation, we see, oh, I don't measure up. I haven't done all that. I've been dishonest. I've uh, been hurtful, you know, in, a, in, in my own journey. All of us, you know, can see ways that we have been inconsistent with God's moral perfection. That's what's intended at Mount Sinai. That's what we're supposed to see. They heard a voice of uh, so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. That's what, how one translation says what was going on there. They heard this voice and they, they wanted to cover their ears. They, did, they said, please stop telling us what you're telling us. But, but the... What we need is conviction. We need moral conviction, even if we don't want it. So covering our ears, as we're apt to do, doesn't change the reality of our need. We can try to cover our ears and say, that's not true about me. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that it's true about everyone. And conviction is a necessary aspect of forgiveness and salvation. If you never come to a place of seeing God's perspective on your faults, you will remain convinced of your self-righteousness. That's why they wanted to cover their ears. Hey, we don't want to hear that. And that's how we are. People, humans generally. It's like we like to continue in the delusion that we're okay, that we've got it together. I'm okay, you're okay. Well, not compared to holy God. Compared to God, we're not okay, and we need something. We're deficient. And so even though they wanted to stop their ears so that they didn't hear the voice, they still had to hear the voice. And God's holiness is what's being emphasized in this passage, this distinction. And it says even if an animal approached and touched the mountain, it was to be pierced through. And it's a little confusing when I was reading this this week, and it says, um, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. Really what it's saying is when we understand what the gospel is, it's pointing us toward a mountain that may not be touched. They came to Sinai, visible, real. It's still a geographic location in the world. And it's talking about here an archetype that is also existing, and that is the new Jerusalem Zion. But it's a contrast that you see in the passage that's saying, 
In the gospel, we haven't come to the experience of Sinai only. It's not limited just to that, to the idea of being convicted and knowing that we're wrong. We've also come to acquittal. We've come to clearing. We've come to justification. And so we see that God's holy at Sinai, but we see that we need more than that too. The contrast is between old and new covenants in the beginning of this passage. And the gospel is the bridge that God built for us to connect people who needed something to God who had something. God had what we needed. And God built a bridge for us in the cross of Jesus, in the uh, incarnation of Christ, and his coming here and being uh, for us the solution, the answer, the Messiah was the way the Jews said it. He's the Messiah, the answer to what man needed, to what people needed. Moses is closer to God than anybody. And yet Moses, when he comes to, the, uh, to Mount Sinai, what does the passage here say about Moses? That he, w- he was exceedingly fearful and trembling. This man that God taps and says, you are my unique spokesman. You are the man for the hour. You are my holy man. But that man, when he came to Sinai, was terrified. And the reason that he's terrified is because he is faced, as all of us are, with God's holiness. And what we see in the Scripture says the Scriptures can find all under sin. All means what? Everybody. Every single person is confined under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So before we move on to the good news, there's bad news. The Scripture says you're morally inadequate. Scripture says, I'm morally inadequate. The Scripture says, Moses was morally deficient, not perfect, had a need. And so when he came to Sinai and got the law tablets and it represented the people, he still was living in his own humanity. Do you remember about Moses, that Moses' life uh, ended in the plain of Sinai, except for that he went up into a mountain and never came back? But he didn't go into the promised land, right? Why didn't he go in the promised land? Do you remember? Because of disobedience, right? When you read the Bible, Moses disobeyed God. And he it was in an exhibition of anger. We just see that, like, here's this person whose life had a major disappointment, who didn't get to the place even in his own human journey. We know he got there in... Uh, terms of life beyond life with God, he, he's there. Because he, he appears again at, at the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. Moses, Elijah, and who's the third person? Uh, three prophets. But Moses among them. And they stand with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Somebody from Sunday school should have helped me out there. But there are three prophets, and they stand with Jesus, and Moses is among them. So we know that Moses made it ultimately. He didn't get into the land of promise with the children of Israel because of his moral shortcoming. And all the uh, point that we're making from Scripture here is Moses was like everybody else. He needed something. He was not total and entire in himself. So if he needed something, clearly the rest of us need something. And so the scripture shows us that, first of all. But also, when God is shaking things up, he shakes us from our debilitating fear. Here's the good news. Is that even though we're 
all categorized in this place of saying, hey, we, dis- we disappoint, we come short. God uh, made a way for a perfect person to be, and none of us qualify. There's a better uh, truth in the scripture that we see, too, that God shakes us from the grip of debilitating fear. We, we're not sequestered in fear at the base of Sinai. We're welcomed by God. That's the movement in this passage that it takes us from that place of seeing ourselves in a way that, like, I, I see my need, to a place where it's like the need is answered and met by God and his goodness as a free gift. So he shakes us from that grip of debilitating fear so that now I don't have to live my life in fear of what happens to me when I die. And, and because God is a judge, right? When you read the Bible, one of the realities about God is that it, he, is, he describes himself as the only righteous judge, only God. And that there is a progression of reality and a temporary life that moves on toward an encounter with God as God really is, a righteous judge. So we don't have to stay sequestered in fear. There is a way out of our our intimidation about that day Uh, and Christ has become for us this Hebrews I love Hebrews in the way it advances and says that you can come boldly now to the throne of grace that you might find mercy and help in time of need isn't that a good promise come boldly to the throne of mercy or the throne of uh, grace that you find mercy in your time of need his throne of mercy that he made the way for us. He became the way for us so that now I can come boldly, it says, even to God's throne. And there I, what do I find? Help, mercy, grace. That's what God promises because of who Jesus is and what he's already done. That's how we obtain his mercy in Hebrews 4.16. Jerusalem in this passage is, uh, we're talking about the heavenly Jerusalem, the the um, city of the great king. Who is that? Well, we could say uh, Jerusalem was a conquered Jebusite fortress. At first, the Jebusites had it, but David uh, moved them out. David became the king in Jerusalem. But who is it really talking about, this city of a great king? You know, of course, it's about the Messiah, and there's this heavenly city that the scripture clearly has in mind and it's trying to discern and help us see who are residents who get to go there who are uh, moving toward that as their reality when the world is shaken in the very end the earthly city in jesus day was the site where the drama of salvation unfolded in jerusalem right that's where jesus was uh, falsely condemned and accused he was arrested he was falsely condemned he he was convicted they took him outside the city to a mount uh, a mountain called calvary golgotha the place of the skull and there he was executed and died and so this is where the drama of salvation occurs and it's uh, we're appealing to the scripture is where salvation happened on our behalf this new jerusalem is the uh, is the home for saints Who's a saint? We talked about this recently. Unfortunately, it's just, well, fortunately, it's just us, people who got forgiveness, who got grace. Even though we think about ourselves, God says you're pronounced holy because you trusted in my son, the the Savior. And so the distinction is between a future of uncertainty and 
citizenship and belonging. And so citizenship is what we get when we're uh, forgiven. And we're, we're contrasting fear and belonging, fear and security, lostness, disconnection, and acceptance and grace and mercy and kindness that we all need. This is how God works. God looks at people. He sees our problem. He became our solution. He himself became the help that we needed. That's what God's heart is like. That's what God is like. Concerning Jesus' mission, I like this. Uh, this is also in Hebrews. It tells us all kinds of uh, powerful, helpful things. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That's the incarnation. Jesus became human. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So it just tells us Jesus' mission in a very simple, uh, capsulized way that God took on flesh in 3 uh, B.C., whenever it was, 3 A.D., Jesus came here. God himself made the journey from heaven to earth, put on skin, lived in uh, our place, and became for us the answer to the problem that people have. As you go through life uh, and you get older and older, what what do you want to face death with? I want to face death with peace. Peace. The, The idea that things are settled between me and God, not because... I checked all the boxes, but because Jesus took my place, because he released me from the bondage of fear associated with death by dying for me, by being raised from the dead. For each of us, that's what the Bible teaches. And so the scripture goes on in another place in 1 Corinthians and talks about we saw this back when we went through 1 Corinthians. When this corruptible has put on incorruption, corruptible just means like your, your body. Today is my 60th birthday. Six zero. All that means is that my knees hurt more than they did a few years ago. My back, I have to stretch and do all kinds of things to uh, move around. You know, you're more arthritic than you were a few years ago. I mean, it doesn't just mean that. But that's what this is talking about when it says corruptible. I am corruptible. I am breaking down. That's the rule of life. Moses, the only psalm that the Bible attributes to Moses, Psalm 95, says your, your life is going to pass away so quickly that you think it was a vapor. And he says, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And he, he talks about there the idea. He says... Uh, a person gets to be about 70 or 80. That's what Moses said. He said, right, that's how it works. Not that many people live beyond that, although the, uh, the lifetime, the extent that people live has grown. You know, some Frankie's mom lived to be 92. My dad died when he was 76. Somewhere around 70 or 80 years of age. That's about the amount of time you're going to get. 70 or 80 trips around the sun. That's what you get. Maybe a few more. If you didn't eat bacon or whatever, I don't know what it takes to get you there. 
But the truth is, you have an expiration date. That's what that says when it says this. When this corruptible, you have an expiration date. But it's going to put on incorruption. In other words, we're moving on toward eternity. Eternity, whatever that looks like in our case. This mortal is put on immortality. Mortal, capable of dying. Immortal, immortal, incapable of dying. That's what it's saying. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But Jesus became the one who perfected in a human life the requirements of the law, and he took that perfect life and allowed it to be put on a cross for you and me so that we could, when our expiration date occurs, have confidence about the next part of this journey. That's what this scripture is really talking about. And it it describes the ransomed, redeemed people of God. It calls us a church. Ecclesia, we've talked about this before. Every time I see this word in the Bible, I'm going to remind us that it's an idea about being together with other Christians. Your identity now is that God has made you part of a, a family that you used to not belong to. But now you do. And you should value it. You should value it. It's your identity for eternity. Once you become immortal, this is your family. It's your family now, but once you become immortal, it's your only family. It's the only the other people that are immortal. Those are your family. So you should value it now too. And it describes the church as the assembly of the firstborn. An assembly is this, right? It's being together with others who also are worshipers of Jesus. So I like, like I said, every time I see that word in the Bible, I'm going to make a big deal about it. That the people of God meet consistently to pray, praise, preach, give, serve, and grow. That's what we do. To pray, praise, preach, give, serve, and grow. Our identity is deeply rooted in the reality now and forever. God knows those who belong to him. That's why it talks about whose names are registered in heaven. God knows who belongs to him. He knows whose name is registered in heaven. If you've been a student before, like a college student, and you didn't register for a class and you showed up and sat down, they would be like, what are you doing here? You don't get to be here. You didn't register. We have to be registered, and that really is just expressing faith in Jesus. Our name is registered. It's written down because the transaction occurred that we put our faith in the one who brought us grace. We put our faith in the one who showed us kindness. And then he, he puts our name down indelibly forever and ever. We belong to him. We said this is about belonging. And that requires repentance and faith that give evidence of repentance. Faith is commitment to Christ. It's love and worship. We think, what is faith, really? It's commitment. It, it wasn't just assent to a bunch of data. It was, it's different than that in the Scripture. It's commitment. People who had faith had commitment to Jesus. It's, it's not nebulous or debatable what it takes to be registered in heaven. It takes repentance and faith. 
that's transformational. Shifts your allegiance and perspective. That's what faith does. It shifts your allegiance. It changes your perspective. It gives you a different view of the world. It takes us out of the driver's seat. It makes us mindful of God and his purposes, which some of us were really bad drivers anyway, right? When you were driving your own life, you were... You know, I think I wasn't doing a very good job. My driving wasn't taking me to good places. So maybe letting uh, Jesus take the wheel, putting Jesus into the driver's seat, is exactly the right decision that we need to make. Making him Lord, agreeing that, hey, you know better than me. And it makes us mindful of God and God's purposes. That's what being a, having faith does. It puts in us the purposes of God, and then we put it in us through his word, too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you probably have seen this quote before, uh, said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. We think, what does faith mean? Faith means that it's a daily dying. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, Daily taking up of the cross means every day I get up and I say the same thing. I want to die to me being the person that's in charge of my life and keep acknowledging that Jesus is the one in charge of my life. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him, come and die. That's different than how people think about what life means, but I think Bonifer is exactly right in what he says there. In the passage here, it makes a very interesting uh, comparison. Look at verse 24. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, this is who you've been called to, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That is uh, odd trans, uh, or odd comparison, I thought. And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, huh, interesting. He's, he's comparing. The, what, what do these people have in common? What does Jesus have in common with Abel? They both were murdered, right? Both of them were murdered. Abel was murdered by his brother Cain, right? Unjustly, because of jealousy. What did it do to their family, do you suppose? Did it have a positive impact that fatricide occurred in a family, that a brother killed his brother? No, of course not. In fact, Cain was banished and had been sent away from his family. That was the effect that it had. So when Jesus, the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel, it's saying both these people were murdered, but the outcome of those murders is different. Jesus, the outcome for him, he was also murdered out of jealousy by religious people in his day. It was over religion that Cain and Abel came to the squabble that they did. But instead of destroying a family, what Jesus' shed blood did was build a family, united a family, made a family. So that anybody that's in that family is only in there because of the fact that he was murdered. Because of the fact that his blood became the payment of death and provided for us what none of us had and all of us needed, which was a life laid down perfectly for forgiveness. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the scripture says, is eternal life. And that's what Jesus did. Scripture shows us lastly here today, that God will shake the world and reorder it. This idea of shaking, thing, and it really only comes clear in the last part of this passage in, in verses 25 through 29. But people debate about what it means to be human and to have free will or human existence even. But 
however you look at what it means to be a human, one thing we all know is that it means that the clock is ticking on the experience of it. There's a limit to what it means here. There's a limit to free will. I would say, even if you are a strong proponent of the idea that everybody has free will, I believe that, that everybody has free will. Guess what? It's still limited. There's only so long that your free will is going to be active and then it's not going to be. So whatever we believe about free will, there is a limit to our choosing and choices according to Scripture. We are not God and there is a God. That's a very basic assumption of almost every religious belief system and particularly Christian belief. We believe that. There, you are not God, but there is a God. Being accountable to God is very basic also as a religious idea and specifically a Christian idea. The proposed truth here is that God has spoken plainly and finally through Jesus who is God and became human to show us what God wants and to deal with sin fully and finally. And this Jesus is coming again to establish God's righteous reign. You learn all that in Hebrews too. So on the day of the giving of the old covenant, a preview of God's tremendous power was displayed. We see God's power on Sinai. The word for shaken is the word that we get seismic from. So seismic, was, that's the idea of like an earthquake. So when it talks about the world being shaken, it means really shaken. When God shakes things up, we need to listen up. And often things need to be shaken. You think about your own life. We need to be shaken from our complacency. We need to be awakened to what, to what will have mattered once our time here wraps up. Once you have made all your laps around the sun, will the things that have happened through your life be things that will will be commendable, will be things that we think, well, I did actually live for Christ and know Christ. It matters. I had a friend text me this week to tell me that uh, another friend had died, and I didn't see it, you know, like on Facebook or anywhere, and we all used to go to the same church. And she was like, man, life goes by in her. And I thought, it certainly does. That is clearly the truth. Are we living for what really matters in our temporary life? In verse 27, the word forsaken is agitate. It's a different word than the word we have. It's, it's the idea that you like put all these things together and you rattle them around and segregate out certain things. So when it talks about shake, uh, being shaken, it's the idea of agitating. So this week I uh, cleaned up on Monday a bed at our house where, like we have an HOA in our neighborhood, and they hired this company called the Socia, and they will ride around and look at your yard and write you nasty little notes. Like your flower bed is not in the shape it needs to be. So I have dollar weed in there, if you're familiar with that. It really looks like a, um, li a lily pad. I think they're kind of cute up close, but they must not look that great from the road. So anyway, I put the tarp out. I, I used mulch. So I shoveled the mulch out onto the tarp. 
because I put some of this mulch out this year and I didn't want to throw it away. And I borrowed a tiller, a little garden tiller from somebody, and I tilled up that bed. But the stuff that was on the tarp, I sorted out the dollar weeds and whatever other junk was in there. And I threw it in the trash can. And then I took my cleaned up mulch and put it back in the bed. Like, why are you telling us this? Because that's the idea of what it, the agitation when the Bible talks about shaking is that God's going to segregate out what offends. He is going to segregate out what offends in the end when he shakes the world up. You say, well, what offends? Basically everything that rebels against his reign. And he will reorder the world so that he is perfectly glorified in it. That's what the scripture is teaching in verses 28 and 29. We see a similar truth in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Our perspective needs shaking to prioritize what's right. If it's true that reality is nothing more than an extension of our uh, lives here, of worship, or whatever they consist of, how does what is after this life, what do you anticipate? That's a good question. Okay, here's what I believe. The Bible uses the phrase eternal life a lot. Jesus uses eternal life a lot. So what eternal life is, is just more life. So what do you believe about what the world is and what life means? Well, the Bible says that after this temporary life, there's more life. There, it, it continues on. And I I heard a message this week. This guy said this. The life to come is a continuation of the trajectory that you're already on in this life. I think that's true. The life to come is a a continuation of the trajectory that you're already on in this life. So the question, I think, to ask ourselves is, what is that trajectory? Where am I headed? Is my life a life now of worship of Jesus? Is Jesus Lord to me? Is he the one who I believe has forgiven me and cleansed me and so now my life is lived for him with him at the head of and center of my life? I think what we get in Hebrews is a a wake-up call. What's the last thing it says here? Our God is what? Consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a righteous judge. Well, what's the good news in that? That Jesus came to take away the bondage, the fear, the slavery involved in thinking about what life is going to mean fully and finally, that he forgives those who come to him and surrender to him and yield to him and say yes to him. Yes, thank you for this offer of grace. It's so meaningful to me that I'm willing to live the rest of my life for you. That's what it looks like. Those of us who love Jesus will love God's plan for the world. After all, whose world is it? It's not your world. We get to inhabit it and breathe its air and use its things, but the Bible says those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them, for this world as we know it is passing away. What's the world coming to, we say, in the end? Is what people say. It's the world coming to. It's coming to an end. The best thing we can do is love God now, and we won't have to be ashamed at his coming. 
The best thing we can do is worship him now so that we don't get exposed as hypocrites later. The best thing we can do is surrender to him now. The best thing we can do is live for him now. The best thing we can do is pursue him now. Living a Christ-centered life now means that we won't experience the culmination of his history as a seismic disturbance, but as a welcome ordering of an upside-down world. How are you going to experience it at the end? I don't want to experience it as a disturbance. I don't believe I will, not because like I'm a preacher, not because my life is perfect every day, but because the one who loved me, I said thank you and continue to live through faith in, in Christ. So when, when history ends, when Christ returns, when everything is disturbed, it will just be a continuation of worship and, and praise. And I hope that's the reality for you. And that is the crux of this message today. I want to pray for us. We're going to have a song today as we do, as we conclude our service. And I'll be happy to help you think about the implications of what we've talked about. Or just make an appointment and talk to me at some point or one of our elders because they're all godly and capable. And, um, but this is the most important thing. God, thank you for the truth that you show us in Christ. Thank you for the Bible, how it's relevant again and again and again. Thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy to bring kindness to needy people of all varieties. God, thank you that you love us and that you loved us too much to leave us in our mess. But you came here and you gave yourself for us. I pray for anyone today that as they've listened, just need to open their life up and say yes. To trust you and to put the full weight of their salvation on you. And we thank you for hearing our prayer and we make it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?